From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The calendar, well, it's flipped to February, and this month it's time to think about your heart. And we're not talking about Valentine's Day. February is American Heart Month. According to the American Heart Association, 2,300 Americans die of cardiovascular vascular disease each day. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss heart disease and prevention with a Mayo Clinic expert. If you're a man who's 40 and your erectile dysfunction is not due to prostate surgery or something, then you have a 50 times greater than someone else just like you that doesn't have ED. Also on the program, an update on this deadly flu season. And we'll hear from the authors of a new book about talking with the elderly. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Heart disease is the number one killer in America. Every year, one in four deaths is caused by heart disease. Heart disease encompasses a wide range of conditions that affect your heart, including disease of the blood vessels that supply the heart and heart attacks. The term heart disease is often used interchangeably with the term cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease generally refers to both heart problems and blood vessel disease that can occur anywhere in the body. In an effort to raise awareness and promote prevention, February is recognized as American Heart Month. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kopetsky. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. If it's such a big problem, why does the shortest month get devoted to it. Well, at least we get a month. Okay. It's not a day. <laughs> 28 days. You know, it's always good to have you on the program because we all know that heart disease kills more Americans than anything else. It accounts for one in four deaths. But why the heart? I mean, I know everybody, you have to die of something, but we've got all these organs that can go bad. Why is it often the heart? Well, the heart, if it doesn't beat blood to your brain within six seconds, you pass out. That gets our, our attention very quickly. If your bowel stops up, it's a few days. You know, if your if your kidneys don't work, it's a week. You know, if your lungs don't work, it's a, a few minutes. But the heart gets our attention very quickly. Would you say that we're doing better in terms of are there fewer people dying of heart disease than a decade ago? Clearly there are. The prevention efforts, uh, both treating uh, diseases and the diseases that cause the heart attacks are both getting better around the country. All right, the number one heart disease, coronary artery disease, correct? Explain what that is. Yeah, coronary artery. Coronary is another word for the heart. Artery is the tube that carries blood to the heart. And disease means it starts to get narrowed. We've heard the term hardening of the arteries, and that's a very real term because we get calcification in our arteries, and if you take them out and feel them, they are feel like little bones. And what happens is the artery plugs up, as it gets narrowed, not enough blood to the heart muscle, and then you have a heart attack. Coronary artery disease uh, is so common. Uh, there are big arteries that supply the heart. But if you have a coronary artery disease, are you also likely to have uh, disease in your other blood vessels, like the ones that go to your brain or your legs? Yes, it's very interesting. If you look at uh, other arteries, say you have a narrowing of the artery to your head, it's very likely you're going to have a narrowing of the artery to your heart. If you have a narrowing in the artery to your ab, in your abdomen or to your legs, very likely have a narrowing in the artery to the heart. But the biggest correlation seems to be the penile artery function or dysfunction. 
if your penis arteries don't work well, it's very likely you, you have heart arteries that don't function properly also. You have said in the past that that is the fact that sometimes gets patients in to see you more than, oh, you could have some heart problems. Right. <laughs> and we call it the canary in the coal mine, meaning that the uh, artery problems that cause erectile dysfunction precedes heart attacks by about three years. And that's, there's really no other relationship like that within the body arteries. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big issue. It doesn't necessarily mean though that if you have erectile dysfunction, you have heart disease, does it? If you're uh, a man who's 70 years old, no. If you're a man who's 40 and your erectile dysfunction is not due to prostate surgery or something, then you have a 50 times greater chance of having heart disease than another person just like you without erectile dysfunction. Age, did you say age 40? Yeah, in the 40s. Age 40, erectile dysfunction, you're, you, how much is your increased risk of heart disease? 50 times greater than someone else just like you that doesn't have ED. So anybody age 40 with ED ought to come in and see you. Uh, they should see somebody, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say 40, 50, 60, probably. If that is a, if that is a problem, you should see someone, no matter what. <laughs> uh, risk factors for coronary artery disease. Who's at risk? Well, you know, the number one risk factor now is diet. And it's interesting. Really? It's past smoking. More than smoking? Well, you know, smoking has gone down. There's been a big reduction in smoking in the last 20 years, I think, due to educational efforts and taxes, et cetera, that have gone up. Because 90% of smokers start before age 18. And if you can stop them, they don't, they don't start later. Uh, that's a big deal. The hypertension, high blood pressure has come down. Uh, our activity patterns are still quite low. We're not uh, very active physically, but uh, and our cholesterol numbers have gotten better amazingly around the country. So, but diet is the number one risk factor. Diet is the number one risk factor, and you have to remember that 56% of the calories we eat in this country are due from seven food groups that are subsidized. And we all know what those food groups are: you know, corn and beans and meat and dairy, etc. And the more we eat of those, the more likely we are to have high blood pressure, the more likely we are to have heart disease, the more likely we are to have diabetes, the more likely to have obesity. And so I think people are starting to learn that fruits and vegetables are actually good for you. And let's eat something fresh. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> now, I, when we were getting started, you were saying more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, these different things. And then you just left off right now the, what was on the list, what you mentioned before we got started, because it really perked my ears up. So you also said women's sexual health can be affected by diet. Is that what you said earlier? Yes, that the Mediterranean diet, as we define it here at Mayo, uh, which is a very specific 10 do's and 4 don'ts. The do's are olive oils, fruits, vegetables, fish, some nuts. The don'ts are a a deck of card, a a red meat. Uh, You only get a pat of butter a day. Uh, Only get processed foods three times a week, you know, something out of a box. That will not only lower erectile dysfunction, but it's the only diet shown to reduce female sexual dysfunction. That's amazing. Really? See? Well, that, now, now everybody's listening. My ears perked up for that one for some reason <laughs> or another. <laughs> All right, coronary artery disease. If it gets bad enough, one of those arteries, one of those three main ones, three right, main. that supply the heart muscle, one of them gets blocked, you have a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. Tell us how good you are at treating that now and how soon you have to get to the hospital for you to do something that'll help. Yes, good question. The treatment has gotten great. Uh, within uh, 30 to 60 minutes of coming to the hospital, With a heart attack, we call an ST elevation heart attack where the electrocardiogram shows a certain pattern. We get people into the cath lab and open up their artery. 
The problem is that it takes the average patient about three, three and a half hours to come in. Although once they get there, we treat them quickly. So the big push in the future is going to be to have people come in quickly. It may be telemedicine. It may be some of these devices on your phone that will help diagnose. But we really need to do an effort to get people in because if we can get them there, you can really save a lot of lives. One of the things I was thinking about was when we talk about stroke, um, people that we interview will say you might experience some small little TIA-type tremor things in advance of a larger stroke. Is there a correlation when it comes to heart attack, the coronary artery disease, that you will experience some small little precursors to a heart attack? Yes, that's a very good question. And some of the early data actually showed that people, after they quit smoking, their risk of heart attack went up. And people didn't understand that. They said, why would that happen? And they went back and looked at those patients and found that they started getting symptoms of chest pain. Mm-hmm. And they've always been told, don't smoke, it causes a heart attack. So they quit smoking, but the heart attack occurred anyway a few weeks later. So, yes, we get more tightness, pressure, shortness of breath in our chest, and, and we uh, can't do the things we used to do. When you say get them to the cath lab, what, ha- what, what is the cath lab and what happens there? Yeah, good question. The catheterization laboratory, catheter is the name for the small tube we put up to patients' hearts through their skin into an artery. Uh, it's an x-ray lab where you can put a tube up to the heart, inject a little bit of dye, see what artery is narrowed, and then put a balloon or a stent out there and open it up. And how uh, quickly do they have to get to the hospital? Well, we, we'd like them to get there you know, very quickly. The average is three to three and a half hours for a patient to come in to the hospital. But, but once that's still they, okay? You can still open up the artery? Yes. Oh, yeah, we can still open up. Usually it's about six hours after the onset of symptoms. After that, you start to may not be worth it. All right. We're talking with cardiologist and heart prevention expert, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky of the Mayo Clinic. Time for a short break. When we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Women are more likely to die of breast cancer than they are heart disease. Myth or matter of fact, we'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are back talking about heart disease and heart disease prevention with an expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Myth or matter of fact? Women are more likely to die of breast cancer than they are heart disease. Is that a myth or a fact? You know, that is interesting. That is a myth. At any age of life, a woman is more likely to die of a heart attack than she is of breast cancer, whether she's in her 20s or in her 80s. When it comes to that stereotypical, the elephant on the chest, the Hollywood-type heart attack, though women are less likely to have that, or are both men and women less likely to have that? Well, women are less likely to have that throughout their life. Men are less likely to have that after age 65. Uh-huh. And so you have to pay attention to the shortness of breath. The symptoms I died eat something is it I have mm-hmm. indigestion. So a woman's heart attack is a little bit trickier to diagnose? It can be tougher to diagnose, and we have to rely more on objective testing, electrocardiogram, blood tests. But if there's any question about it, call 911, chew, how many aspirin? Two? Well, four. Uh, four, uh, we call it adult low dose now. Yeah. Or one regular, which is 325 milligrams. Okay, and what's the rationale behind that? Well, that it works within uh, 45 minutes on working on your platelets, which are small cells in your bloodstream that clot. It stops that from clotting, and it actually helps reduce the chances of dying from that heart attack. So you've already got the clot, but it keeps it from progressing? Correct. That, okay. All right, risk factors again. And I, I want to—I don't remember you mentioning diabetes, but it, diabetes and obesity I know yeah. are huge risk yeah. factors. And yeah. I think you told us 
uh, a year or two ago that more than 50% of the people who come into the emergency room now with a heart attack have diabetes. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, or? It, yeah it's very common, and uh, it's going to be more and more in the future as we get more obese and less active. But diet number one. Diet number one. Uh, you talked about uh, cholesterol. Uh, the statins have been around for a long time. Right. Um, still safe in your mind? Still safe. There's this, always this question of diabetes, and it does seem to bring diabetes out earlier, about three months earlier, if you're on a statin than if you're not. But for every patient that develops diabetes, there are five less heart attacks. High blood pressure, you mentioned that also. Yeah. High blood pressure, diabetes, smoking are still there. They're two, three, and four for the risk factors. But number five, and coming up quickly, is sedentary lifestyle. What about the hereditary component? You know, hereditary is interesting. It is a big factor. If your dad had a heart attack at age 45, you know, you're at risk. However, our lifestyle can modify our response to our genes. Certainly because families, their lifestyle is very similar to each other as well. Exactly. And we looked at paired twins who were born identical and separated very early on. The one that had the bad lifestyle has a heart attack a couple of decades earlier than the one that has the healthy lifestyle. Exercise a big deal, and I know uh, you've mentioned before about interval training. Are you still a big fan, and why is that good? Interval, there are three great things that happen within seconds of doing an interval or going hard. One is your muscles tell your heart pump more. The heart likes that. The muscles tell the uh, blood vessels get bigger. I need the blood. But the great thing is the muscles tell the fat that we all develop, except for you, Tom and Tracy, <laughs> as, a, as an adult, is that I am running for my life. We're running from a saber-toothed tiger. I don't know what, why they're telling me to run like crazy, but I'm a muscle. I don't have a, a backpack with a bunch of granola bars in it. I'm just using all my energy. You've got to pay me back later, fat. So when we're through with this, if we survive, you've got to break down and send me energy packets. So interval training, explain for our audience exactly what, what we mean by that. Well, there are three concepts. One is once you warm up, go hard. Go hard enough that you say this is really hard. You could be swimming, swim a hard lap. You could be on a bike. You can be running, whatever. Tennis is a great idea, you know, the, the interval. The second thing is don't go too long. Just go like 60 seconds. If you go too long, you can't go that hard. And the third thing is when you slow down to get your breath back, fully get it back so you can go just as hard next time. And is there a, a heart rate at which you ought to shoot for when you're exercising, depending on your age? There really isn't. It's more of a perception of how hard you're working, because we can be on medicines that slow our heart rate. Some hearts go faster than others. Just make it feel like you're really going hard. That's it's a perception. Let's talk about some alternative uh, measures for heart disease prevention. Yeah, and what I want to ask, oil. Me, yeah, huh? fish, fish oil, oil one hundred and one, yeah, fish oil, fish oil. What a great, uh, what a great uh, thing to take. I, I took mine this morning. My wife, we both take it. The once I told my wife it reduces wrinkles, she I have to buy twice as much. Uh, there's dermatology. <laughs> Is that you put that. topical or you take that by no, mouth? <laughs> no, it's a pill. Tom. Yeah. But try to get a thousand milligrams of the two active ingredients added together, which is EPA and DHA. The bottle on the front will say a 1,000. You have to turn it on its side and read the active ingredient. What about NSAIDs, um, anti-inflammatory medications that a lot of people are, are taking? Uh, I've seen some warnings that maybe they're not good for your heart. That's true. That It does affect these platelets, these cells that clot uh, easier. And uh, so what has been shown actually is that celecoxib, which was the one that was taken off uh, the market at high dose. Is that Biox? Yeah, at uh, 200 milligrams a day is probably a very good one to take. Uh, naproxen, uh, uh, endomethacin, uh, those aren't as good. 
What about vitamins? Uh, I've heard you talk about them before. Uh, it seems like which one you ought to take for what changes uh, from day to day or week to week. What 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 are vitamins are good for the heart? The vitamins that are good for the heart, you know, there's been a lot of talk about vitamin D. If you get sunshine, uh, you're in good shape. We don't get it much up here, so D may be helpful, actually, especially if your levels are low. Vitamin C and E, actually, in high doses, not multivite, but but higher doses are actually not good for the heart. We tell patients not to take vitamin C and E at high doses. And then beta-carotene, the stuff found in in carrots. Eating a carrot is good, but don't take a high-dose beta-carotene. That's also bad for the heart. Um, can you get all of these in a, a daily multivitamin? Yeah, no, you take them separately. Multivitamins are fine. Uh, that dose is a reasonable dose. Uh, when they've done the studies, uh, they don't show any benefit, but it also doesn't show any harm. Uh, back to statins, one more question. I, I recall uh, some years ago you mentioned that most of the cardiologists here at the Mayo Clinic are taking a statin, and there wasn't such, th- such a thing as too low a cholesterol. Still believe that? No, I don't, and I may be a little at odds with the uh, with the pharmaceutical company, in that they say let's we can push it down to an LDL of ten or twenty. Let's do it. I say that uh, you know below thirty, we ought to stop there because the cholesterol is used to make other hormones like progesterone, estrogen, aldosterone, cortisol, and we need to uh, make sure that it's safe. So don't go. Don't go below thirty. So you don't need to take a statin, but you should take some fish oil every day. Uh, if you, at least you eat fish three or four times a week. Gotcha. So what's your criteria for giving someone a statin? At what, at what cholesterol level? Well, the guidelines say that if their risk is over 7.5% for, at 10 years for having a heart attack, failure, non-failure, or a stroke. And you can figure that out by asking some questions in family history, et cetera. Exactly. Then consider a statin. All right. And uh, there is such a thing in your mind as too low a cholesterol. Be reasonable with how much you take. Yeah. If you look at the Tsunami Indians in uh, South America, they have the healthiest hearts in the world. It's been shown by CT scans. They don't develop calcium. Their average cholesterol is actually in the 80s, uh, their LDL cholesterol. So, you know, we don't all need to be on a statin. Our lifestyle is so much more important. All right, and fish all you like, but you got to look at the side of the bottle and make sure you've got EPA and DHA in there. Equal up to about a 1,000, right? All right, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, cardiologist and an expert in prevention of heart disease, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thanks again for being with us, Dr. Kopetsky. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have an update on this season's flu outbreak. And later on in the show, a new how-to book for talking with the elderly. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at newsnetwork at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Treating cancer patients with all of their symptoms can be complicated, but a Mayo Clinic study shows communicating how a patient is managing treatment may be as simple as a scale of emoji faces. Dr. Carrie Thompson, a hematologist at Mayo Clinic who led the study, says the results should lead to better patient care. The scale works really well, and that's one of the things we wanted to determine. Is this something that is scientifically proven to say what we think patients are trying to say? And it works very, very well. Dr. Thompson says the research looked at how doctors can track their patients' progress using an Apple Watch and an app on their phones. 
Patients could rate how they were feeling using a scale of five universally recognized emojis. Medicine has gotten so complicated. So to have something that's simple, we all know emoji. We all know what various faces mean. Dr. Thompson hopes simpler communication with emojis will lead to better care of patients. Getting information in between appointments to accurately know how patients are doing is going to make a big difference. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. This year's flu season, it's actually the worst in a decade, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Influenza, or the flu, is a contagious respiratory illness, that is the airways and the lungs, caused by a virus. And if you get the flu, well, the usual symptoms include fever, chills, cough, aches and pains, sore throat, no fun. And in some cases, you may need to be hospitalized, and every year, influenza causes thousands of deaths in the United States. This year, the number of people falling ill with the flu is still on the rise, and one alarming statistic is the growing number of young children that are dying from the flu. Joining us on the phone to discuss the flu outbreak is the head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group, Dr. Gregory Poland. Welcome back to the program again, Dr. Poland. It's good to be speaking with you. Thank you. Good to be a part of it. It's been a bad flu season so far. You, do you expect a lot of cases in the next few weeks? You know, Tom, that's actually a very uh, good point. In fact, the season will get worse by any measure. Uh, so far, we've had 38 children in America die from influenza, most of whom don't get immunized. Two-thirds of uh, pregnant women in the U.S. have not yet been immunized against influenza. This is a bad strain that's circulating, H3N2. Every year when we do get this sort of uh, strain, and the last time was 2014, 2015, we have relatively lower vaccine effectiveness against that one strain, many hospitalizations, complications, and death. Dr. Poland, I just had heard that on social media there is a fake news story saying that the vaccine is completely ineffective. Yeah, you, you labeled it right as a fake news story. I, you know, one of the big myths is, you know, the media will proclaim, well, the vaccine's only 30% effective. And it's such a piece of misinformation and it does such harm to people. What they're saying is that against one of the four strains that's in the vaccine, only one out of three will be prevented from getting any illness. The number who will be protected from complications, hospitalization, or death is much higher. They don't tell you that. The other point is there are three other strains contained in the vaccine, and the vaccine is well matched against those. For example, and this will happen through the flu season, which will last another 12 or 13 weeks, is we will begin to see influenza B in particular and some H1N1 cases. In Texas right now, almost 10, 12% of the hospitalizations are from influenza B. And the B virus that's circulating is well matched with the B virus that's in the vaccine. So it's important for people to be discerning when they hear that and to protect their own health and the health of their families by getting the vaccine to reduce the chance of complications from influenza A and prevent infection 
with the other viruses that are also circulating. So not too late to get the flu vaccine, and how long does it take for the for you to be protected? Not too late at all. In fact, I, I mean, I would urge, as I, I'm sure all my fellow physicians at Mayo Clinic would, is get your influenza vaccine. It takes about two weeks before you have, you know, the peak of, of protection, but it's not too late to get it. As I say, we are very likely to have another 12, 13, 14 weeks of bad influenza. Does the flu vaccine give you the flu? The flu vaccines that are administered in the U.S. are all inactivated. We're not using the live attenuated nasal spray vaccine this year because it proved to be ineffective for other reasons. So the only vaccines being given are inactivated uh, virus, influenza viruses and pieces of those viruses. It cannot give you the flu. I think what people misunderstand is one of two things. When you get the flu vaccine, it is meant to fool your body into thinking that you have influenza. And so you have immune responses that might mimic some of that. And the second thing is coincidence. We've done, myself, my own group have published studies showing that whether we give people a flu shot or a saltwater shot, because of the number of respiratory illnesses circulating in the wintertime, that it is coincidence and have, they have no difference and the symptoms, whether they got a saltwater shot or a flu vaccine. Is so-called stomach flu also the flu? You know, um, in, in fact, uh, most of what's circulating in a given year is not influenza. For example, of those people sick enough to go to the doctor, only about 25% of those with flu-like symptoms actually have influenza. So the majority have adenovirus or other viral or, or bacterial infection. The ones that cause predominantly gastrointestinal manifestations are not respiratory viruses at all, yet everybody lumps it into, quote, the flu. I've got four quick myth or matter of facts. If I've got okay. the flu, I can infect someone standing six feet away. Absolutely. If you're coughing and sneezing or touching anything they touch, almost a given. You can only get the flu once per season. Is that a myth or a fact? That is a myth. That's wrong. Because there are so many influenza viruses circulating, you can get infected and reinfected within the same season. That's why the vaccine has four strains in it. Next one, once I get the flu shot, I'm only protected for a short time. So I'll wait until later in the season. Oh, it's such a wrong perception that particularly people who have underlying medical illnesses are very young or elderly. Um, it will last most all of the season unless you have an abnormal immune system. So you want to get that flu vaccine as early in the season as possible to be protected. All right, last one. Influenza is the only vaccine I need to protect myself from respiratory illnesses in the winter. That's a real myth, particularly older people or people who have underlying medical problems, there are a number of vaccines that should be given, including pneumococcal vaccine and pertussis vaccine. Every adult needs a one-time dose of acellular pertussis vaccine as an adult, and every adult with underlying medical problems or over the age of 65 needs a series of two vaccines to prevent pneumococcal or bacterial 
pneumonia, which, by the way, is the most common complication after influenza. Dr. Poland, you have already been on our program once this flu season, and we don't mind having you on a couple, two or three times, but you asked to come back again, and is is that last reason that you gave the reason why you wanted to join us again to talk about the flu? Well, well, that's part of it, but, you know, honestly, to to tell you what motivated that is um, all of us as healthcare providers at Mayo Clinic carry a motto around, and that's simple seven words, the needs of the patient come first. And even when information might be unpopular, like, you know, get your flu shot, I feel duty-bound as a male physician to say to our patients and to those who aren't our patients but our listeners, protect your health, protect the health of your family, and even of other families that you come in contact with by adhering to the most important medical advice we can give you this season, which is to get immunized against influenza, acellular pertussis, and if you need pneumococcal vaccine. Dr. Greg Poland, Director of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, joining us from Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks a lot, Greg. My pleasure. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the authors of a new book, If Only You Would Ask, How to Have Meaningful Conversations with the Elderly. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever felt obliged to visit an elderly relative or a friend, but you really were sort of reluctant to do it? You dreaded the small talk. You didn't know what you were going to say. True. And once you talk about family and, and the weather, you sort of run out of something to say, and you're a little feel a little awkward, and likely so does the person <laughs> that you're going to visit. Potentially. Yeah. And, you know, that's the experience our guest today encountered in their own lives until they found a better way to spend time with the elderly by striking up meaningful conversations. I love it. Why didn't I think of this? <laughs> they have written a new book to share exactly how to do just that, and it is called If Only You Would Ask, and it offers 42 topics and over 400 questions that can spark memories and help the elderly to share their own story. No more struggling to carry on conversation with an elderly relative or friend. Joining us in studio are the co-authors of the new book, Mother-Daughter Duo, Eileen Opatzberger and Joan Berger-Bachman. Welcome both of you to the program. It's a pleasure to meet you. Well, thank you. We're thank happy you. to be here. Eileen and Joan, so nice to have you. Now, we have had a chance to peruse the book, and by the way, it's wonderful, and I see the ratings on Amazon, five star, <laughs> and we're going to tell people how they're able to, to get the book later on in the program, but uh, tell us, Joan, about the experience uh, of visiting your father-in-law, Bill, during mm-hmm. the end of his life. My father-in-law passed away five years ago, and at that time he had decided he was going to live in his home. He wanted to stay there until the end of his life, and so it was in the middle of a long, cold winter, and from Rochester it was a drive that I thought I should make at least once a week. Being the good daughter-in-law Being the good daughter-in-law that I am, (laughs) and and because I loved him. But I would get to his house, and... You know, after the hugs, we'd sit down at the kitchen table and I'd tell him about what I'd been doing and what the children were doing and maybe what I had for lunch. And so what's he been doing? Well, as the weeks went on, his life was getting smaller and smaller and he'd spend hours at the kitchen table looking out the window and talk about, you know, there were rabbits out there. And But the, the perfect truth was there was less and less to talk about and... um 
After an hour or so, I'd kind of look at my watch and think, well, I, I better head back. And I'd give him a hug and say, you hang in there, Bill, and um, we'll see you soon. And so it wasn't long after I commiserated with my mom that, oh, my, those visits to Bill were getting painful. And I just really didn't know what to talk about. And he had so little to share because he wasn't getting out anymore. And... Um, So before I went the next time, Mom put together a a notebook filled with questions. And she said, you know, take this with you and uh, ask them some of these questions. And she said, and then you might want to leave it on the counter for the grandchildren. They might find it useful. And I thought, well, all right, and had it with me. And the next time I went to see Bill, I did have the notebook, and uh, but it was too late. We had kind of missed our window of opportunity where he was able to have an in-depth conversation about about much of anything. And well, so but the moms, know, moms know best, don't they? So Eileen, how did you come up with this list? Well, I belong to an organization called AAUW in Arizona. And it's an umbrella organization that encompasses lots of different interest groups. Well, one of the interest groups happened to be something called Memories into Memoirs. Each month we would meet and a topic would be picked. And so the small group of about 10 members would write an essay about that particular topic. Well, after 20 years of belonging to this group, I mean, I had quite a list of topics. I thought to myself, well, maybe Joan would benefit. I'll I'll dig out those topics and come up with some questions, and maybe that'll make it a little more enjoyable. When Joan expressed an interest, and after Bill had died, we got together and we said, there's got to be thousands of people like Bill. I mean, alone or in a retirement home that maybe they don't have many visitors, and no matter how good they are in a retirement home, and I'd say most of them are, you know, there's always room for a little enrichment, stimulation, and so we thought, gosh, why don't we think about putting together a book (laughs) that would address this, and maybe that'll be the answer. So how long did it take you to put it together? So it's been... um It's been about five years, and it was time to have the baby this last month. (laughs) And we would work on this. There wasn't really a time limit. We'd work on it when we were together, and there have been many iterations of, well, what questions should we include? And So it took you about a year or so? It took about five years. Well, Five years. It's been a process. It's been a process to come up with perfection. You know, it doesn't happen (laughs) overnight. Yeah, how does this work? Do you just open up a Joan and you just page through and then stop and then ask that question? So the beauty of the beauty of the book is that you can pick up the book and you can open it up to any page. As you mentioned earlier, there are forty forty two topics and some four hundred questions. And each topic is divided into a little section that includes a hook question. And so the hook question is bold and in a box, and this might be all you need to spark a conversation. So, for example, I'm going to open the book, and I'm looking at topic 10, which is dating. And the hook says, what was the hardest part about dating? And that might be enough to get it going. But if a little more assistance, then there are follow-ups. At what age did you start dating? How did you meet the people you dated? How did your parents feel about this? And no matter your age, everybody, I would think, would have some opinion about their own dating experience. But if not, 
you can just open the book to another chapter, another topic. Let's talk about something else. And talk about something else. So you take this book with you. Can you take it with you to the nursing home or the Mm -hmm. wherever? Yeah. You take it with you. And you can choose to give it to the person with whom you are visiting because we all know that sometimes we might be asked a question and can't think of an answer at that moment, but then later that evening you think, oh, I I could have said that, or I wish I had said Mm -hmm. that. And if I have a lot of downtime during the day, I could spend time with the book and, well, what would I say if someone asked me? So, Eileen, I'm, we have to wrap things up here, but I am struck with the idea that, you know, you get this and leave it with the elderly person, with the adult, but I've got teenagers and I think this book would be invaluable for them. How to speak to adults. Right, <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. And we think it would be a wonderful um, bonding with the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You know, so often, Young people think, you know, when you get a certain age, how dull is that? And, you know, everybody has a story. You know, in our Minnesota humility, we'll say, oh, you know, I really, I've never done anything very unusual or, (laughs) well, but everybody has had their, their ups and their downs and their challenges and good things and wisdom. Um, my son-in-law was with us over the holidays, and of course the book was on the counter, and he kind of was looking through it, and yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then it just was interesting because the next day he went and spent an afternoon with his grandmother, who lives in a senior facility. And my daughter commented that, gee, Jimmy really asked her some good questions. And then I, I said to him, well, yeah, did that have anything to do with the fact, and he didn't have the book, did that have anything to do with the fact that you had just looked at the book? And he looked right at me and he said, yeah, I guess it did. I guess so. How can people get their own copy of If Only You Would Ask? Because it's obvious a lot of people need this. We just need to know I've, how to get it. Oh, in fact, we keep thinking like activity directors in retirement homes. What a what a natural that would be. Or a small group therapy. Well, she's, or good. Yeah. she's good. She's <laughs> good. That's just about everybody, caregiver. isn't it? Personal <laughs> and by the way, mine is autographed, and if you're lucky, they'll autograph <laughs> yours too. Before but it is home. available on Amazon, Amazon Prime. You'll get free shipping. Um, <laughs> you can get it at Barnes & Noble um, online. And, and you've got a website, right? We have a website, www.com. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that title, If Only You Would Ask, because everybody has a story. If you ask the right questions. Perfect. Eileen Opetz Berger and Joan Berger Bachman, you're the best. Thanks so much for being here. Love the book. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's our program for this week. <laughs> for more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week. 
week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 